We're talking about a journalist who took political asylum for fear of the political persecution that the U.S. was taking against him, for fear of torture and inhumane and degrading treatment, for fear of being put in prison for the rest of his life, for exposing the crimes of the U.S. government. And then he was kidnapped. He was kidnapped in the end on the 11th of April 2019. He was arrested by, U by British officials and immediately the U.S. indictment was revealed. So what is the involvement of the U.K. Uh, government in Julian's political persecution here? You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, broadcasting from the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. We mark those lands as only a small example of representing, healing, and honoring the peoples left being dealt with unjustly over the course of decades and a return to a more harmonious path in the future. Our show is broadcast across Turtle Island and via podcast at globalresearch.ca. My name is Michael Welch. The voice you just heard at the beginning was that of Stella Morris, a South African-born lawyer, speaking to a crowd and reporters outside the Royal Court Justice in London, England, on October 28, 2021. She's speaking out with considerable concern about the man at the center of one of the most talked-about court cases in the world, which activists in support of him say could have repercussions for the freedom of whistleblowers and journalists in an era unveiled by a fantastic computer technology system. The person at the center of this storm is none other than Stella's fiancé and the father of her two sons. His name is Julian Assange. The UK courts are now faced with this decision about whether they can extradite a journalist to the country that was plotting to kill him. It would be unthinkable that they would go along with it. I hope that justice will be served. Thank you. Julian Assange founded and directed the WikiLeaks nonprofit broadcast organization in 2006. In 2010, he earned international fame when U.S. Army intelligence analyst, who now goes by the name Chelsea Manning, used WikiLeaks to publish a series of leaks of the Iraq War, the Afghan War, and Cablegate, which caused enormous difficulty for the United States to keep up its reputation of prosecuting just and humane wars. For example, the video Collateral Murder, released in April of 2010, showed footage of U.S. soldiers in a helicopter fatally firing upon 18 civilians, including two Reuters journalists. The event took place during the summer of 2007. This uploaded video obtained what a freedom of information request could not. The U.S. responded by going after Assange. The revelation is that U.S. has, for the first time, opened up the U.S. and state systems generally in ways inconsistent with the need to keep public information private. 
the current process of going after Assange from the time he declared political asylum in the Ecuador embassy in London to the campaign of deriding his reputation through descriptions of being a hacker and a rapist to now his hearings in the UK capital to have him extradited to the United States is ultimately not just a target on his back, but on the backs of every individual who seeks, above all, to uncover the cracks in the wall of the powerful, separating them from the rest of the public. As we will hear in this presentation, it is not just targeting one radical journalist, but everyone who strives for the journalistic model of afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. This special broadcast is entitled Journalism in the Crosshairs, the Julian Assange Case. Since Julian Assange was removed in April of 2019 by a group of police officers from the Ecuador embassy at which he had declared political asylum and had stayed for seven years, he was shortly thereafter served the U.S. indictment against him that he was facing a charge of conspiracy to commit computer intrusion into a U.S. government computer system. This indictment was later elevated to 17 additional charges under the Espionage Act of 1917. He has sat through the extradition hearing in the fall of 2020, where extradition was blocked. This extradition call was appealed in late October in 2021 and is waiting for a verdict. In the meantime, Assange has faced two and a half years in Belmarsh Prison. The prison is used for high-profile cases, particularly those concerning national security. For a brief time in 2001 and 2002, it was used to detain a number of people indefinitely without charge or trial under the provisions of the Part 4 of the Anti-Terrorism, Crime, and Security Act, 2001. BBC once described it in a news article from 2004 as Britain's Guantanamo Bay. This situation is apt to bring on suicidal behavior. I'm uh, John Shipton. Uh, I'm Julian Assange's father, and uh, I've been uh, working uh, on a campaign to uh, bring about uh, Julian's freedom from the persecution and prosecutions that have been launched against him by the Swedish uh, nation, the United Kingdom, and the Department of Justice of the United States. John Shipton said in the past that authorities are deliberately trying to kill Julian. I spoke recently to him about Julian's well-being currently. Not the best, you know, uh, under the pressure of never knowing when this thing is going to end. It just goes on and on. The, uh, also, the, the prison insists that uh, all of its people are medicated in the case of Julian uh, under the pressure of an appearance in court, having his psychology examined in the public, uh, in public, uh, in court last week. Uh, they increased his medication. So, yeah, not the best. It, it is, you know, it is now 12 years of ceaseless smearing, mobbing, and court cases. I think uh, if I count up the number of court appearances now, it would be something like 14 
in total. It is just the most extraordinary thing to think that this can happen to a publisher, to a journalist who has not broken any laws. It's just, I don't know, it takes my breath away. It leaves me, you know, it's so grotesque and obscene that these uh, people who uh, go to work in the Crown Prosecuting Service have a meeting about Julian Assange and come up with another legal instrument which they stamp and then put into effect and then go home and have a glass of wine, take the kids to the movie. It's, it's grotesque. John Kiriakou went through an arrangement similar to Julian. He served as an analyst and case officer for the CIA for 14 years. He led the team that captured senior Al-Qaeda member Abu Zabeda in Pakistan in 2002. In 2007, three years after retiring from the U.S. intelligence agency, he disclosed during a television interview that the CIA had used torture. Five years later, the Obama administration arrested him on charges of espionage. He ended up serving 23 months in prison, basically for opposing the Bush administration's torture program. He elaborates on what he experienced. The attorney who I liked and respected the most on the whole team, a a major A-list attorney here in Washington, angrily said to me, you know what your problem is? Your problem is you think this is about justice. And it's not about justice. It's about mitigating damage. Take the deal. And so I took the deal. Now, in retrospect, of course, that was the right thing to do. Otherwise, you know, at sentencing, my judge said that she wished she could give me 10 years because she would have given me 10 years. She was a Reagan appointee. Um, And so even with that statement, she ordered that I be sent to a minimum security work camp. At a minimum security camp, there are no bars on the windows, no fences, the doors aren't locked. You're free to come and go as you please. You're just on your honor not to abscond. Well, uh, I arrived, uh, you know, you, you just, it, it's kind of crazy. You just drive up to the prison and knock on the door and say you're there to turn yourself in, which I did. But then they started leading me around to the back of the actual prison, which is the, across the street from the minimum security camp. And I said, no, no, I'm supposed to be at the camp across the street. And the guard kind of chuckled at me and he said, not according to my paperwork, you're not. And I told myself, take it easy. There's nothing you can do. I figured they would throw me in solitary if I raised a ruckus. So I didn't say anything. It took me about five days to get access to a phone. And I called my attorney and I said, hey, they put me in the actual prison with the, the pedophiles and the drug kingpins and the mafia dons. So what do I do? And he said, my God, well, we could file a motion, but it'll be two years before we get a hearing and you'll be home by then. He said, I'm sorry, buddy. You're just going to have to tough it out. And so I decided that I was trained for this kind of event. The CIA had spent millions of dollars training me frankly, training me uh, to be prepared to be captured by enemy forces. 
And so I decided that I would use that CIA training to uh, make sure that I remain safe and at the top of the social heap. While few people would quarrel with the right to expose what Assange exposed about war in Iraq and Afghanistan, Assange's supporters would argue that he has also had to contend with sneaky maneuvers by state authorities that would be overcome in time, yet would still deal blows to his reputation and ultimately his freedom. One person making this point was an individual working for the media company started by journalist Bob Perry in 1995. This is Joe Loria. I'm the editor-in-chief of Consortium News. I have been since April of 2018. After the passing away of our founding editor, Robert Perry, uh, Bob founded Consortium News in 1995. It's one of, if not the oldest online news magazines in in the United States, maybe in North America. Ultimately, they did not, the Obama administration, indict him because they could not prove that he'd actually participated in the stealing of the documents that his source gave him. They understood that if he was a passive recipient, even of stolen government documents, that did not make him liable for for espionage charges or for computer intrusion charges. So... Joe Biden, when his vice president, went on a Meet the Press in December 2010. You can see it's online on YouTube. And he said very much that. We, if we can prove we got him red-handed, taking part with his source stealing, we can indict him. They never did. The first one was the falsification of the witness testimony by the Swedish police uh, uh, recording the complaints of the two complainants. The second one was shopping around for... Uh, a prosecutor who would handle it. So there have been four prosecutors. The third one is uh, the refusal of, of the, sorry, the conspiracy between the, the Crown Prosecuting Service and the Swedish Prosecuting Authority to ensure that Julian stayed in the embassy and uh, no charges were ever laid against Julian. After nine years, the, uh, and uh, the, Julian's lawyers taking the Swedish prosecuting authority to the court in Sweden. The court, federal court of Sweden, ordered the uh, Swedish prosecuting authority to advance the case. Then we have the FBI uh, coming to nine FBI officers coming to Iceland and suborning and bribing a witness there. Uh, named Thordarson, Thordarson uh, to give testimony uh, uh, to uh, court about uh, uh, computer intrusion. That testimony, of course, has been withdrawn. Thordarson, a convicted child molester, a convicted fraudster, is now back in jail. The reason why he gave testimony against Julian was that the FBI had promised him an immunity for any crime. He's a habitual criminal. Um, so that blew up as he now, that Thordarson's now in jail. A convicted pedophile. He's a convicted embezzler. He's an admitted liar. He was just arrested again two weeks ago. Um, he lied about being close to Julian Assange. And in fact, only 
joined WikiLeaks so that he could steal from WikiLeaks. That's one thing that they have to deal with now, which I can't see how they get around. After the extradition hearing in September 2020, admitted that he was lying, recanted it all to the Icelandic news magazine Stunden. So that part of the case has collapsed. They have no case. Uh, the Obama administration didn't want to use the Espionage Act, but the Trump administration did. Next one, the CIA involved itself in suborning a, the UC Global, which was the uh, the security firm in charge of keeping Julian safe. And they installed cameras and uh, recording equipment so that overhearing and recording all of Julian's conversations with his lawyers, with his family, with his friends, um, I remind you, and with his doctor, I remind you that, uh, that uh, it's, uh, if you record uh, the, the conversations you have with your lawyer uh, are considered private so that it, you actually break a law and you taint the evidence if you, uh, record the conversations of uh, a, uh, an accused with their lawyer. That came into the September 2020 hearing by way of two witnesses from the Spanish court case against UC Global, a Spanish security firm originally hired by the Ecuadorian government to protect Assange, but was then co-opted and contracted by the CIA to provide ultimately 24-7 live streaming out of that embassy. Everything Assange did, even apparently inside the bathroom, was filmed and, and, and there was audio. Uh, they knew everything and they spied, most importantly, on his conversations with his lawyers. The next one, <laughs> they just go on. The next one is the CIA plans to uh, murder Julian, to to kidnap Julian, to ran scenarios of um, shooting the tires out of cars in the streets of London. Of course, the MI6 said, "Well, you can't do that. We'll do it for you." So there's arrangements made with the MI6 that if uh, it was supposed, you know, in the fantasies of the CIA that somehow or other Russians were going to break into the embassy and steal Julian away. And in the process, the CIA and the MI6 would shoot the tires out of the gut. I mean, this all, all sounds quite ridiculous, but uh, it was revealed in the... Uh, by 30 uh, CIA officers to Yahoo, uh, Dorfman and Isakov being the reporters just a couple of weeks ago. The CIA had requested presidential authority to kidnap or to kill Julian without, without allowing him to face his accusers in a court of law in the streets of London. Uh, plan B was if Julian were to make it onto a Russian diplomatic plane to then shoot out the tires of the plane. That's an act of war. That's an act of war. Now, it appears that this plan went through the chain of command until it got to National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster. This was in 2017, and McMaster killed it. So there never was a signed presidential finding allowing the CIA to murder or to kidnap Julian Assange. This is what Julian's up against. But, but the British judges, as conservative as they may be, they're not stupid. 
They read the papers and they know that as much as the Justice Department promises that they won't put, put Julian in solitary, they're going to put him in solitary or in a communications management unit, which is just as bad. Scandal after scandal after scandal. The latest and the biggest scandal is really that the United States made three indictments against Julian and as the case, as their case collapsed, they further submitted a further indictment until in the end they had a superseding indictment which uh, included the uh, the uh, evidence, so-called even the accusations of the of the past mentioned Thor Darson, that was the final indictment. The judge's ruling, another scandal. The judge ruled that all of the 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 charges are upheld. That is, that Julian uh, be sent to the United States for espionage, charges of espionage. Julian's not, <laughs> he's not an American. You can't. So, uh, you know, it's impossible to charge him with uh, espionage. He's not an American citizen, Australian citizen. At the time he was living in England, it's just absurd. Well, the judge upheld that. Um, further, the, the judge also in the treaty between the United States and United Kingdom for extradition specifically, specifically says that it can't be, uh, it, it can't be extradited to the United States for political offence, which clearly espionage is, or well, the judge accepted the United States determination on that. Finally, saying that Julian couldn't be extradited because of the circumstances in American prison. This is the, another foul blow from a, a judge. Now, this means that the entirety of the appeal, which was last week, and further appeals, which will happen, is the psychology of Julian Assange. That's shocking because there's crime after crime after crime revealed. As it stands right now in the hearings, the information in this program was all exposed in court, yet the only grounds for blocking his extradition was the threat that he would be suicidal. That was the basis of the argument, that Assange was seriously ill and that he could be going into a harsh prison. She ruled completely with the United States on all the points of law, except these two points about his mental condition and on the condition of the U.S. prisons. And that made her go against what sounded like she wanted to send him uh, to the U.S. This would be extraditing a journalist, as Bob Perry said back in 2010, doing his job. Uh, he received the documents. He didn't steal them. He published them. No difference than what uh, major American media or British media do. Uh, on a routine basis. Talk of assassination that's in Melter's report and countries ganging up on him is palpable nonsense. Palpable, that's what he called talk about Assange being possibly assassinated. This is what James Lewis, the prosecutor said, it has to find as palpable nonsense. But of course, <clears throat> he didn't say anything on Thursday when this came up again. 
He really tried to destroy Meltzer and associate Koppelman with Meltzer to show that he was biased in favor of Assange, that he wasn't being objective to the court, that Meltzer was biased and he was full of this nonsense about the countries ganging up on him and trying to assassinate him, <clears throat> and that Koppelman agreed with him. And of course, Koppelman said he only agreed with the medical side of the report by Meltzer, who was not a doctor, but he brought two doctors, a medical doctor and a psychiatrist with him to see Assange in Belmarsh prison a few months after his incarceration there, after his arrest on April in April 2019 and his dragging out of the Ecuador embassy, as everyone remembers seeing. Uh, so Meltzer made this report. Now Meltzer tells the story that he didn't believe it at first either. He thought it was all rub his lawyers, Assange's lawyers contacted him many, many times to investigate this. And of course, it's true, a rapporteur, UN rapporteur gets many, 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 many requests and many of them legitimate ones, but he can't handle them all. He kept putting it off and sort of, he says, believed the mainstream media stories about Assange, that he was a rapist, that he, uh, that he hacked. He was a hacker and a rapist, essentially. Those are the two stories that the U.S. has put out through the media that has influenced so many people. Judges have to decide, is he really that ill? And, are, and can they believe the U.S. won't put him in those horrible conditions? Interesting, the Americans could not argue that their prisons weren't horrible. They could only argue that he won't go to those horrible prisons. So they're not trying to... They, they wouldn't dare say, try to prove in a courtroom anywhere that there aren't dungeons. Uh, as everyone around the world who studies prisons knows how bad these American isolation conditions are, especially the SAMs. This is where we are now. These judges have to decide. Now, I just want to point out what they can do, the five possibilities. They can uphold the rates' decision and dismiss the U.S. appeal. They can allow the U.S. appeal. And they could, uh, then it's over vacate the order to extradite, they can amend the ruling, they could send it back to the magistrate's courts with instructions of following the laws that I was just describing. A fifth possibility, which doesn't seem very likely, is that the two judges fail to agree, there's two judges, not three, not an odd number in the high court, they fail to agree and then a new high court panel would be uh, established and it would rehear the high court uh, appeal again of the US. That's a fifth possibility. Now, if they hold up if they uphold Barrett's decision, the U.S. will very most likely appeal that to the Supreme Court, the U.K. Supreme Court. If they allow the U.S. appeal, then Assange's lawyer, Jen Robinson, said on Australian TV that they definitely will go to the Supreme Court. If they amend the ruling, they will probably, that's part of, I think, sending it back to Barrett's to say, follow the rule. You didn't follow properly because he isn't all that ill. Uh, and maybe throw out, amending the ruling could mean throw out Koppelman's testimony, which the Americans want. So these are the possibilities. What's really, really scary, Michael, is this. Do you, James Lewis said in the court, the, Amer the prosecutor for the Americans, that if they lose, and I think he meant this case, even if they lose in the UK Supreme Court, they will put in a new extradition request they could start the process all over again. This is not a trial. There's no double jeopardy here. He's not being found guilty or not guilty. This is whether he could be extradited or not. So it's not a court of law to decide whether he's guilty of these crimes. That would happen in the US, in the Eastern District of Virginia. So they could start it all over again. And if you recall, there was a Stratfor dump of files of WikiLeaks. 
I think around 2015 or so. So I'm not quite sure about the date. And one of the files uh, of the, these hundreds of thousands of Stratfor, Stratfor is a private, one of these private intelligence companies that uh, many, many of their emails were leaked. One of them was about Julian Assange and WikiLeaks published it. And it said, let's just keep him going. We'll hound him from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. We'll go one case after the other. And what they're doing, Michael, is keeping him in prison. He will stay in prison because they think he's a flight risk. They denied him bail when he won the extradition case. Baratza discharged him and then three days later threw him, never let him leave Belmarsh. This would happen again even if he won because the U.S. will appeal. Once there's, as long as there's a U.S. appeal going, they're going to keep him in prison again. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. The show is heard on radio stations across Turtle Island, aka North America, and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. I'm Michael Welch. Julian Assange began his life 50 years ago. Interesting fact is that the meeting of his parents started at an anti war rally. Here again is his father, John Shipton. Yeah, yes, uh, it's, uh, it's, um, the unfolding of history makes some extraordinary coincidences. And, um, all that time ago, 50 years now, or 50 odd, um, the, the Vietnam War protests, uh, and now, of course, there's a worldwide movement to support Julian Assange, who had uh, published uh, secrets uh, released to him by Chelsea Manning. Um, and those were concerning the Iraq war, the Afghan war, the Guantanamo Bay files. Um, and they're the principal uh, charges that are le- levied against Julian. Um, and so it's an oddity that uh, the persecution of Julian continues um, unabated when, in fact, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Der Spiegel in Germany, Le Monde in France, El Pay in Spain, and uh, The Guardian in the United Kingdom all published just a little before WikiLeaks published. That seems a, a, a distinct uh, persecution of a person for uh, uh, reasons that are hard to, uh, very hard to define. You can think of a couple of examples you can remember that might shed light on, on where that independence and, and determination came from. Well, uh, its origins, uh, of course, uh, his mum has uh, a lot of determination and uh, um, fierce application. Um, but uh, really the manifestation uh, that I remember uh, off the top of my head was uh, his assistance to the um, police force in Victoria, Australia, in the his capacity of understanding how the internet worked, was able to uh, track down and reveal a pedophile network. Um, and from for that, effort, he received uh, considerable praise from the um, members of the uh, task force in the Victorian police force. Julian uh, 
has a profound sense of injustice and a determination that uh, injustice uh, be brought to an end by the manifestation of truths, rather like uh, Prometheus unbound. So without knowledge, there is no road to freedom. If you have knowledge, you can find a path to freedom. That's uh, singularly motivating and uh, a icon to hold above, hold above and in front of you know, ourselves. And Julian uh, put that into effect by taking the making a provision for anonymous leaks and holding those leaks on a website where anybody with access to a computer or a smartphone could go and learn for themselves what their government's doing, what their governments aren't doing, and what their governments are conspiring with others to do. Anti-war rallies, for those of you who don't attend them, are not, for the most part, made up of gatherings of people hoping to get the bad guys to halt their activities via meditations or anything like that. They target our own governments and highlight the lies being used to justify their actions. In order to be effective, you need journalists to disclose the lies. In this regard, Julian Assange and his new gadget, WikiLeaks, has been vital to remove more secrets and elevate him to the status of an anti-war giant. Hacking and cypherpunks were now leading figures on the stage. I sought the assistance of an individual who examined the device WikiLeaks and its contributions to the public good. My name is uh, Dr. Binoy Kampmark. I'm uh, based in uh, Melbourne uh, at the moment uh, in the School of Global Studies at RMIT University. Um, and my connection with WikiLeaks and broadly speaking with Assange stems from uh, electoral involvement in addition to research on, on WikiLeaks, uh, but electoral involvement in 2013 when I was his running mate for the Senate ticket in the state of Victoria in the Australian federal elections. And uh, Julian's uh, father, John Shipton, actually asked me if I would participate and, and so did Julian. And uh, that's where I got to have dealings with them and got to understand the nature of the, if you like, transparency platform of WikiLeaks, the, pol the political side of that. Uh, in addition, of course, to its working as an organization that publishes uh, so we say material of uh, importance uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, classified nature, but also to inform the public debate. There are these uh, regimes in place, for example, like freedom of information, but freedom of information, you know, retains an asymmetrical relationship between the user, the individual seeking FOI, if you like, and the person who makes the decision as to what to disclose. Um, and you might correctly get a document, but that document might be entirely redacted. So you've exercised your right to freedom of information, but you don't know what's in it. Um, WikiLeaks short circuits that sort of system and enables you in a way that's, if you like, radically transparent to see the decision in full in its raw way. And that's really um, the nature of that sort of experiment. Um, and further on to that, uh, WikiLeaks also dramatically transformed the way reporting is done because you can access the, the you know the whole notion of now being able to access a document in its original form to see how a journalist reported on it is something that has 
been transformed by WikiLeaks by enabling the reader to see the original document when it was obtained so that you can actually then make your decision up for yourself or your mind up rather than relying on those internal censorship mechanisms that are traditional in any publishing house, uh, any newspaper publication or magazine publication. So the importance of radical transparency is a kind of a shift of power to the general citizenry. That's really the, the essence of that idea. Okay, well, what's the difference between, uh, say, Deep Throat from the Watergate situation or Daniel Ellsberg from the Pentagon Papers opening up information to reporters versus Chelsea Manning utilizing WikiLeaks to open up the Iraq War to scrutiny? Well, I think in many ways they, they conform to the same pattern. Um, the idea of leaks is that they oxygenate democracy. They oxygenate, as it were, a state of discussion that enables us to see what is happening in a setting that keeps things secret that we should know about. Um, so the WikiLeaks model, if you like, is just a refined version of, uh, of the deep throat version, if you like. It's a refined version of how you um, become a clearinghouse, if you like, of information that is disclosed by individuals who are whistleblowers, who are in the know, as it were. And then WikiLeaks makes it available on a global platform for you to consult. It's just that it's not been done on this scale before. WikiLeaks was a pioneer in enabling, uh, if you like, not just snippets, you know, because of course the, the point with be it Ellsberg, be it with um, Deep Throat and so forth and Watergate, these were. Um, as it were, parts of the picture that were given over. And even with the Pentagon Papers, it was a 7,000-page um, report to know that in itself uh, did not necessarily reveal the whole picture either. So the point with WikiLeaks is that it takes one step further, as it were. It goes into the... It enables you to, to see um, the real raw aspects of the material as well, you know, um, and it's totally unvarnished. Um, so it's important that I would like to see it as a development of that trend anyway, be it of leaks, but it systematically orders those leaks and enables uh, the general citizenry, if you like, to access it. What do you see as the danger to WikiLeaks uh, and to journalism at large if Assange is sent to the United States? It's, it's fair game. It, 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 what means, if this is successful, it means that the, uh, the Espionage Act can be extraterritorially defined. It means that it doesn't just apply then to the U.S. Uh, territories. It doesn't just apply to the U.S. proper. It applies to any foreign publisher, any foreign news outlet, and of course, potentially news outlets in the U.S. itself, that published material that might be considered as falling within the sections of the Espionage Act, mainly section 793 and its various cognate sections about, you know, punishing reception of classified defense material or transferring it or possessing it or publishing it. So it means effectively that the U.S. will be able to, using what measure of legal or illegal means uh, will be able to justify it on the basis of any, against any publisher globally, wherever they are, whatever mechanism they use and whatever they use to publish the material. About 10 years ago, we heard of this new system of, of making government less secretive and, and the, the stars of the show were the cyberfunks and the, uh, and the hacktivists. 
and you know Assange, Snowden, and, and others. Uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but it, it represented a, I think, a kind of revolution against the working order of hiding information. You know, the, the states fighting back viciously. I mean, if certainly if the uh, you know you know the, 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 given the, the treatment of of uh, Assange, I mean, Nils Melzer, you know, pointed out you know the the damage to him and so on. Uh, so, so brutal methods on display. So, what do you think? Is, is the state, is the revolution still ongoing? And in the end, will the, the brutal methods on display, uh, who, who will succeed in that revolution and, and counter-revolution uh, battle? Yes, well, I mean, it's, it's a very uh, important question you ask. Uh, I would suggest that uh, it's as with any of these sorts of battles, the, the gains are very, you know, they're costly, they're uneven and they're costly, but it's not necessarily, uh, I think it would be wrong to say that the, uh, the, those in the states, for example, broadly speaking, state powers and the ascendancy, I think the, as you say, the cyberpunk movement, the, um, the appearance of Assange, the, the importance of uh, the likes of, say, Jeremy Hammond, Barrett Brown, uh, they've demonstrated the importance of understanding the intricacy of power and you know, how the private industrial complex, how it's linked to the military, how decisions are made behind, you know, in, with such in almost unaccountable ways, and they've demonstrated this to be the case. And in some ways, gains have been made. So, for example, the to take, say, Snowden's revelations, and this is not, of course, publicized enormously because it's considered an embarrassment, but um, the presidential policy directive um, uh, that was made directly in response to the Snowden revelations, uh, you know, I think it's PPD 28, if I'm not mistaken, um, which was passed during Obama's time, specifically acknowledges the rights of privacy of um, non-Americans. So intelligence services should, for example, make every effort they can to identify information without the need to breach the privacy of foreign citizens, so non-US citizens, which in itself is quite a remarkable thing to stipulate in any document. And whether we can always say, well, how genuine is this and how is it actually observed? But in, in actual fact, it is remarkable that it's even then that's a direct response to the Snowden revelations. So there are these gains. And of course, the same thing with various changes to dragged and surveillance in the US. It's still you know, very much there's a problem, but there have been attempts in Congress to rein in certain powers as well of the intelligence services. So there are, as it were, there are rewards in these battles, um, but it is a, a very, it is one of quite high attrition, that's the thing. And the ruthlessness, and as you pointed out, the way Assange has been treated, the way Niels Melzer, uh, the rapporteur, has noted the fact that he's been mobbed, essentially, he's been, uh, which amounts to torture, uh, by several powers who are determined to see him essentially, well, as I've written about it, die by via process. Uh, the fact that he's still in a prison in Belmarsh, the, the maximum security prison in Belmarsh, the fact that he is uh, you know, receiving this treatment, that he has not been offered bail, and that he potentially faces appeal after appeal that will stretch potentially for years, is a sort of, uh, whilst the UK is de facto jailer for the US, you see, it, it suggests a process where the state will respond viciously. And that will not change. That will only get worse, I fear. Mm. Julian seems to have reached a broad range of individuals 
based on more than his technical abilities. He's gotten the positive attention of Megan Sherman. She is a contributor to global research. She's also been active with WikiLeaks and was profoundly impacted by him. My background is in independent journalism, geopolitical research and analysis, poetry and music. I studied politics at university and I defined my radical politics in contrast to the conservative liberalism of the course content. I'm also an anti-capitalist protest organiser and I've led protests against corporations that avoid tax. Well, getting involved with Julian Assange was really a side effect of a spiritual experience where I met John Lennon as a guardian angel. I was such a huge fan of Julian for the collateral murder and Cablegate scandals that I would clap whenever he came on the news, but I soon forgot about him until Lennon reminded me of him. That's when I pledged a campaign for his liberation. My involvement with WikiLeaks is informal and I am not formally affiliated with them, but my journalism in particular is an extension of their mission to demystify propaganda. I have had some communications with them where they told me they've read my work and thought very highly of it, which is really humbling. Thank you for taking the time to read my articles. Really, my articles are an attempt to give him the time and attention he deserves, where we have a media climate where they are childishly speculating about his hygiene, rather than focusing on a salient fact of asylum. I respect and admire him for his ethical purity and the way he upholds the integrity of the First Amendment as a weapon against tyranny. The parallels between Julian and John Lennon are obvious, really. They are both peace icons and warriors against the US deep state who have fought the Empire in court and have been targeted for illegal surveillance. They are both powerful enough individuals to disrupt the Imperial project and advance the course of global peace. Lennon was so powerful, his interventions often led to the release of political prisoners, and were he alive today, I am sure he would have campaigned for WikiLeaks. Speaking from personal experience, I can confirm Julian is an ally of women. I contacted him when an abusive partner assaulted spyware. Not only was he the only person who believed me, he actively befriended me, which inspired me to leave the abuser. With the era of confident journalism fading away, along with the weight of this man we have come to admire, people may wish to do what they can to shift the scales back in the direction of freedom and justice. Here are some of the examples of what they can do to help. Most of the action is in London, but uh, the rest of us can go to wikileaks.org and... Uh donate even $5. Uh, there, there's a team of really terrific attorneys in, in London, in the United States, in Australia, and they're, they're working as hard as they possibly can. I'm not an activist. I am really a journalist. I explained I work for the Wall Street Journal and the, and the Montreal Gazette and, and uh, the Sunday Times of London and our editor of Consortium News. So our job is to put out the facts. But if you read the facts in the case, so we're not even supporting Assange so much as we're reporting the case. The facts support Julian Assange. The facts clearly support his case and go against the U.S. case. So if you care about the case, read about it in our media and other alternative media that have been doing a good job as well. And, and then see how you decide whether this is important or not. 
whether this is vital to your future, not just one man in Belmarsh, Britain, but whether you value a free press, whether you value uh, whatever's left of American democracy, maybe North American democracy. So, uh, and if this spurs you on to act, well, you know what, I wouldn't stop you. That's what I'll say. I think the um, there's already a very um, healthy and hearty movement uh, in terms of, uh, you know, advertising his plight. Uh, there's a very good organization around that, you know, the Justice for Assange movement and so on. And there's certainly a whole swag of um, notable personalities who have come up to speak for him. But I suppose one of the things that's most crucial is to convince individuals or for the members of the general public um, to convince those in power that, and this is very important, those in power that he has, you know, he has performed an invaluable service in terms of exposing corruption, in terms of exposing the, uh, the vicissitudes of power and more broadly, and that he should be treated as uh, a publisher and be given those freedoms. People can disagree on the margins as to you know, how conventional he is as a publisher, whether he fits the standard mode of journalism, but this is, you know, this is to miss the point, and that's the reason why you know his opponents love splitting hairs on these things, um, and to convince politicians globally about his role, but also, and this is very important, to convince the media, the traditional media, about his role, because for a long time, you know, the the the, the gray lady, as it were, the New York Times has come around to it, you know, the the, the Guardian has accepted and many have accepted now that uh, he performs an invaluable service. But we have to remember that the traditional fourth estate has had skepticism about him for so long. Uh, there's a kind of an acceptance that he's a bit different and therefore doesn't deserve the same protections that, that any scribbler, any uh, investigative journalist does, but this is where I think it's wrong. So convince the journalists, convince the politicians, and, you know, there are healthy movements that are taking place, but uh, there's always more that needs to be done to drum up more um, understanding of that, because Assange remains in many circles a polarizing figure, and that is something one has to get over to look at more general principles that are at stake. There is a website called writejulian.com, write Julian a letter. That's sufficient because that is, gives heart as he gets the letters and he replies to them. The, the next thing is just with a, a local group of people, make your feelings known and write a small petition and send it to your local member, to your local parliamentary representative. Just a small petition. Uh, this works because it brings the concern of the people in the electorate to the attention of, of the uh, parliamentarian. This is really important. It sounds very simple. It is very simple, but it works. The next thing is form a small Facebook page or an Instagram page or a TikTok page. Uh, I like TikTok because you can put film up or a, a Twitter handle and just send out stuff to your friends and it accumulates. Uh, and yeah, just send out stuff that, uh, that you feel that, you know, will make your position known uh, on the matter of Julian Assange and the persecution and prosecution of a publisher and journalist.
all of this benefits Julian and benefits ourselves as well. To close our show, another man impacted by Julian was John Pilger. He's a world-renowned journalist and filmmaker, the author of several books and maker of over 60 documentaries, the latest being The Coming War on China and The Dirty War on the NHS. Pilger has won dozens of prestigious awards and has been honored by several universities. Here he is giving a speech in support of Julian Assange outside London's Old Bailey Central Criminal Court, hosting his September 2020 trial hearings for extradition to the United States. In 2008, a top-secret U.S. State Department report described in detail how the United States would combat this new moral threat a secretly directed personal smear campaign against Julian Assange would lead to, and I quote, exposure and criminal prosecution. The aim was to silence and criminalize WikiLeaks and its editor. Page after page revealed a war on a single human being and on the very principle of freedom of speech and freedom of thought and democracy. The imperial shock troops will be those who call themselves journalists. The big, <coughs> the big hitters of the so-called mainstream, especially the liberals who mark the perimeters of dissent. And that's what happened. I've been a reporter for more than 50 years, and I've never known a smear campaign like this one the fabricated character assassination of a man who refused to join the club, who believed journalism was a service to the public, never to those above. Julian shamed his persecutors. He produced scoop after scoop. He exposed the fraudulence of wars promoted by the media and the homicidal nature of those wars, the corruption of dictators, the evils, of Guantanamo. He forced us in the West to look in the mirror. He exposed the official truth-tellers in the media, so-called, as collaborators. Those I would call Vichy journalists. None of these imposters believed Julian when he warned that his life was in danger, that Sweden was a setup, and he was right, and he was repeatedly right. The extradition hearing here this week is the final act of the campaign to bury Julian Assange. It's not due process, it's due revenge. The American indictment is clearly rigged, a demonstrable sham. So far the hearings have been reminiscent of their Stalinist equivalents during the Cold War. Today, the land that gave us the Magna Carta is distinguished by the abandonment of its own sovereignty in allowing a malign foreign power to manipulate justice and by the vicious psychological torture of Julian. A form of torture, as Niels Melser, the UN expert, has pointed out, that was refined by the Nazis because it was more effective in breaking its victims. 
Every time I've visited Julian in Belmarsh Prison, I've seen the effects of this torture. When I last saw him, he'd lost more than 10 kilos in weight. Incredibly, his wicked sense of humour was still intact. As for Julian's homeland, Australia, <coughs> Australia has displayed only a cringing cowardice as it has secretly colluded with a lawless power against its own citizen who ought to be celebrated as a national hero. It's said that whatever happens to Julian in the coming weeks will diminish freedom of the press. But which press? The Guardian, the BBC, the New York Times, the Jeff Bezos Washington Post? No, the journalists in these organisations can breathe freely. The Judases on The Guardian, who flirted with Julian, exploited his landmark work, made their pile, then betrayed him, have nothing whatsoever to fear. They are safe because they are needed. Freedom of the press now rests with the honourable few. The exceptions, the dissidents on the internet, who belong to no club, <coughs> who are neither rich nor laden with Pulitzer Prizes, but produce fine, disobedient, moral journalism. Those like Julian Assange. Meanwhile, it's our responsibility to stand by a true journalist whose sheer courage ought to be inspiration to all of us who believe that freedom is still a possibility. I salute him. Thank you. You've been listening to Journalism in the Crosshairs, the Julian Assange case. This was a broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, broadcasting from the traditional lands of the Yachinabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is broadcast on other stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback about this or any other show we broadcast, please leave a message at globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Please stay tuned now for your next broadcast. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thank you for listening. Join us again in seven days.